Well, good morning to you guys in the room and online as well. My name is Bruce Ed Riley Lester. I'm the high school pastor here, and it's my privilege this morning to open up God's word. And I know something for all of us in this room. We all have fears. Like right now, raise your hand if you've been scared of anything in your life. Raise your hand. Okay? All of us have been scared of something. Maybe for you, you're scared of public speaking like I am, and you're, I'm up here now. I'm just kidding. But see, some fears are rational, and some are more irrational, but are fears nonetheless. And when fears become extreme, they become what we know as phobias. So I want to walk you through a few phobias that are real-life phobias. Here's one. It's called decidophobia. It is the fear of making decisions. Husbands, raise your hand if your wife has that. No hands are up. Okay, good job. That was a test. We all passed that test there. Um, that's a fear that Savannah and I have when we say, hey, where do you want to eat? And we're like, um, you know, we go, and we usually end up at Chick-fil-A anyway, but it's always like, we're good believers, but it's always list 10 restaurants and always land on the same one. So decidophobia. Here's another one. Politicophobia. And that is the fear of politics. Okay, if you spent any time in the past year, two years, whatever, on social media, you may have developed that fear like many people have. But, so you have politicophobia. Another one, you have somnophobia, which is the fear of falling asleep. Now, I don't understand that one because I love to sleep. Um, yesterday, literally, I was watching um, the PGA Championship and I fell asleep. My wife called me and um, she was like, are you okay? And I'm like, uh, yeah, you just woke me up. Um, I do not have that fear. I said, we have a nine-month-old son, so we look forward to sleep. We're not scared of sleep. Um, another one, this one is uh, for all the students and parents in the room. It's called nomophobia, and this is the fear of being without signal or Wi-Fi. Okay, every single person in this room felt that, all right? You know, whether it's a student, man, that's like a student's worst nightmare. Um, like imagine just, you know, doing anything as a 6th through 12th grader, not having any technology available with you. I don't know what you would do. Welcome to the real world. Um, and this next one, this is an odd one, okay? This one, I don't understand how someone figured this out, but it's called omphalophobia, omphalophobia, and that is the fear of belly buttons, Okay? Um, like, I don't understand how you shower or go in the pool. Like, ah, I don't get it, okay? Um, but it's a real-life fear. And then um, another one, here's a more common one. This is arachnophobia, the fear of spiders. Raise your hand if you're scared of spiders. All right, we got some hands going up, all right? I'm not afraid to admit that. And then I have to apologize to a few of our uh, church members here, to Dr. Vansel and Dr. Moore and then my friend Devin Calloway. But here's another fear, and it's dentophobia, and it's the fear of dentists, Okay. Um, I may have that fear. I'm not a big fan of the dentist. I will say ever since I started going to Dr. Vansel, I actually kind of look forward to going just a little bit. But see, this morning, we're not going to be talking about different types of phobias we have. Because trust me, the list could go on and on. If you just Google phobias, the list is unreal. But see, there's a phobia for almost anything, but there's also a fear, I believe, that each and every one of us in this room has had currently has or will have some time in the future, and that fear is the fear of the future, whether that be the future of your marriage, the future of culture, the future of your kids' future, the future of our society, the future of our education system, the future of our church, well, the list goes on and on, but today what I want to do is I want to look at a passage of scripture out of the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, and talk about how the author here Give us a way to battle the fear of the future. You see, God's word teaches us that only can we stand up boldly as the church, not to just stand against culture, but to stand up and be a beacon of hope and light for the culture. 
So if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I want you to turn with me to the book of First Peter. If you open up your Bible, go to the very back and flip to the left a little bit, you'll end up in the book of First Peter. And now as you're turning there, I want you to imagine that everything that could possibly go wrong in your life is going wrong, not just going wrong, but going terribly and horribly wrong all at once. Like imagine trying to do what is right no matter the cost, only to have that blow up in your face. You see, this is exactly what's happening to the people that Peter is writing to in the book of 1 Peter. Peter is writing to churches across what we know today as modern-day Turkey who were governed by Rome. The people in these churches, they became believers after Jesus had ascended into heaven and things were going well. People were putting their faith in Jesus each and every day, month by month. The church was growing, it was exploding, and they were changing the world. And the world this time was Jerusalem for them. And the church, it started with the people who were worn down outcasts. They weren't the religious elite, they weren't the political elite, they were these outcasts, but the church was blowing up. And as they continued to grow in their faith, the religious elite and the political elite began to take interest in this thing called Christianity, and some began to convert and become believers. So needless to say, things were going great for the church at this time. However, out of nowhere, things began to go horribly wrong. Out of nowhere, their world was flipped upside down. You see, the leaders in Jerusalem and in Rome, they got nervous about this new way of life called Christianity. They got nervous about how things made change and how followers of Jesus um, could change the way of life. And so they decided that now Christians should be public enemy number one. So this church where everything was going well, everything was going right for them, all of a sudden, they were now public enemy number one. They were being outlawed once again. They were being persecuted, beaten. They were arrested. Jerusalem, the place where thousands of believers had grown up in the church, had grown up and matured in the faith, was no longer safe for them. So what did they do? They scattered all around the known world. Some began to quietly continue in their faith, some continued more boldly. Some started to decide whether or not Christianity was actually for them, and they contemplated giving up this Jesus thing altogether. And that is why Peter wrote this letter. Peter wrote this letter to encourage them to stand strong. He wrote the letter to encourage his readers to endure hardship by giving themselves entirely to God and standing strong in their faith. Why did Peter write the book of 1 Peter? He wrote it for the church and he wrote it for us so that we would know this, that when we stand strong, we honor Christ and point others to him. You see, standing strong in the present will have an ultimate impact in the future. Church, if we decide today to stand strong today, it's going to have an impact in our future parents. If you decide today to stand strong in your faith and be an example for your kids, it'll have an impact in the future. I know that from my life because of my parents. Because they stood strong in the faith each and every day, and here I am today trying to do the same for my son. So this is why Peter wrote this letter. In the last book, or last chapter of the book, in chapter 5, Peter spelled out the goal for the church. And here's what it is. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, Peter wrote this. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Why did Peter write this letter? so that we would stand firm in our faith. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, he tells us four things to do in order to stand strong. And we're going to spend a little more time on this first thing, because when we do the first thing, 
The second, third, and fourth kind of follow suit. But the first thing Peter told the church to do to, tell strong, to stand strong, the first thing Peter tells us today to stand strong is this. It's number one, advance in your faith. In order to stand strong, what we must do, we must advance in our faith. Look at what Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. You see, Peter is here is concerned that some believers have, have not grown in their faith. That yes, they accepted Christ and became Christians, but they haven't matured at all. And he re- fears that they're going to remain spiritual toddlers. And as a spiritual toddler, they're not going to be able to endure what the future holds. They needed the pure spiritual milk. They needed a desire to advance in their faith, advance in their walk with the Lord. And as Bruce mentioned earlier, my wife and I, we have a nine-month-old son, Bentley. And let me just tell you all, he's the greatest kid of all time, okay? Uh, Parents, I'm sorry, but my son's the best. I am that dad, okay? Um, My son's the best. I know some of you are like, man, it's early. It's only nine months. Just wait. Let me be naive, okay? Let me just relish in that and know I know it's not going to be this easy, but right now he's the cutest kid in the world, and I would do anything for him. But when it comes to babies, one thing I've learned is they grow by drinking milk, right? Not just like a glass of milk on Sunday and then a week later a glass of milk the next Sunday. No, babies need milk every day, multiple times a day. And our son, when our son doesn't drink all of his milk, um, we get a little worried at times. Like, hey, you got to drink this because this, this is good for you. This is how you grow. And we're all at times trying to like, you know, get force feed him the bottle and he's slapping out of the way. Milk's going everywhere. It's just a nightmare, but he's still the best, so it doesn't matter, okay? But we're like, hey, you need this milk. You need this to grow, and then all of a sudden, we have to change his diaper, and we're like, hey, man, don't eat as much, please, okay? Uh, parents, you all know what I'm talking about there, all right? Um, but the question I want to ask all of us is why do so many Christians think that a glass of God, a glass of Jesus is good one day a week? Why, as believers, do we think we can get a glass of Jesus on Sunday and then wait a week to get our next glass? Or a study shows, why do so many people think, hey, you know what, I can get a glass this Sunday and then wait three weeks and come back the next Sunday? Because study shows us that the average believer goes to church about once a month. And across our nation, the average believer goes to church about once a month. We see it in our own church at times. Like if everybody who comes to our church came each and every Sunday, this room would be filled. But you see, as I was talking to our students this past Wednesday night, challenging them about the importance of the church, far too often what happens in our lives is that instead of building our lives around the church, we build the church around our lives. Instead of scheduling our calendar around the church, we schedule the church around our calendar. Because we think, hey, we can get Jesus when it's convenient, but we know in this verse, babies need milk every day, not when it's convenient. We need Jesus each and every day. We come to church on Sunday and we're empty by Wednesday. Why? Because we forgot Monday, Tuesday. We need milk each and every day. We need to continue to grow and develop in our faith. And see, imagine this. Like imagine if a mother only fed their baby once a week. Imagine if a mother only gave their baby milk once a week. What would happen to that baby? 
that baby would be weak. It would barely survive. We'd be calling defects on the parents, saying, hey, there's something wrong here. Well, here's the truth of the matter. Some of you, some of us, some of us watching online need to call DSACs, the Department of Spiritual and Christian Services, on our lives. It's funny and true. Because we're neglecting our own spiritual lives. We see when it comes to neglecting a child, that's a big deal. But for some reason, when it comes to neglecting our faith, uh, whatever, I'll pick it up next week. But at the end of the day, you can't take care of that child unless you take care of yourself. You can't take care of your grandkids' faith. You can't help your kids in their walk. You can't help your neighbors in their walk unless you first are helping yourself. And with our son, you know, there's times when Bentley's not eating as much. Why? Because the system hasn't cleared out quite yet, and I'll leave that to your own interpretation. But you see, it's not until the waste is cleared out that he is ready for more milk. As believers, as we cast out impure desires and motives, as we put away in these verses malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, then we are prepared to feed on the wholesome spiritual food of the Lord. Why is that? It's because Christ will never taste sweeter until sin tastes bitter. The Lord will never taste good until sin tastes bad. We will never enjoy eating the things of the Lord, devouring his word until sin has a bitter taste in our mouth. And as we do that, we will continue to grow and long for spiritual milk, to grow in our walk with the Lord if and when we see and taste that the Lord is good. When you taste the Lord is good, you want more. When you take a bite of a big, juicy ribeye steak, what happens is you don't take one bite and walk away. No, you take one bite and you go back for more and more and more. You see, Christ and sin cannot both look beautiful to us. As the appeal of one rises, the other falls. When you evaluate your life, when you evaluate your Christian walk, what looks beautiful to you? The things of the world or the things of God? And guess what? As the things of the world become more beautiful in your eyes, the things of God become less. But as you taste and see, as you devour the word of God, as you get into this spiritual milk each and every day, what happens is Christ becomes more and more beautiful to you, more and more tasteful to you, and sin becomes bitter and ugly and undesirable. Peter tells us that it is in the word of the gospel that we meet Jesus. And it's Jesus who gives us a taste and goodness of God and teaches us that in all things we can trust him. In Jesus, we are seen at our worst moments. Yet Jesus still loves us, and we know if he loved us then, he will not leave us now. When we advance in our faith, when we move from baby faith to grown-up faith, a faith that is unwavering, built on the solid rock hope of the gospel, the solid rock hope of the empty tomb, then we can do the second thing. And the second thing Peter tells the church and tells us to do today is number two, affirm your foundation. So first, we have to advance in our faith, then we have to affirm our foundation. Look at verses four through six. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. For it stands in Scripture. 
Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You see, our foundation, our cornerstone is Christ. If you know anything about architecture, the most important part of a building, most important part of anything is the cornerstone. It's the foundation stone. The cornerstone is a stone that holds all things together. Every stone that is laid eventually ties back into that cornerstone. If the cornerstone is stable, then the rest of the building is going to be okay no matter what comes at it. And for each and every one of us here today in the room and watching online, we all have a cornerstone. I think, man, what is my cornerstone? Your cornerstone is that thing that you fall back on whenever life throws a curveball at you. Your cornerstone was ever you fall back to when, when life begins to get hard. What do you retreat to in order to tell yourself that everything's going to be okay? Is it your family? Is it your bank account? Is it your social status? Is it your marriage, your relationship, your friends? Is it your faith? What is that thing that when life begins to fall apart that you go back to and say, you know what, everything's going to be okay? Like, think about the past year, year and a half. For some of you, if you really think about it, your cornerstone was a person in the political office. Or your cornerstone was a political party. Some of you, it was family. And this past year, it was taken away. There's people passed away. You couldn't see them. Some of you, students, it was athletics. Some of you, it's your kids' achievements. That when life goes hard, you look back, but man, look how good my kid's doing in sports. My kid's the all-star. Everything else, as long as my kid's the best, everything else is okay. But mine's the best, so um, sorry. You lose that one. But what do you retreat to? For some of you, again, it may be money, it may be financial stability, financial freedom. And over the past year, a lot of the things were taken from you or jeopardy of being drastically altered. You may have been worried and anxious, not knowing what you were going to do or where you were going to go. You see, if your cornerstone is anything but Jesus, then your life is going to be characterized and manifested by everything listed in verse 1. Look at verse 1 again. If Jesus Christ is not your cornerstone, your life is going to be marked by malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Envy, man, God, how come their business stayed afloat and mine shut down? How come their family wasn't affected by this, but I was? Hypocrisy. Yeah, everything, everything's good, everything's going well. Can you believe he asked me that question? Can you believe they're doing these things when everyone else is struggling? Deceit. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing, we're doing really good. Then you get home and your life is in shambles and you're crying on the couch because you're afraid to ask for help. You're afraid to be honest because you want to put this face on because the thing you built, your cornerstone, was now taken from you. But if your cornerstone is Christ, these all go away and we're able to put these things away. You see, the cornerstone of Christ, it's not just your personal foundation, but it is also the foundation of the church. 
Like if we as a church are to be a conduit of change for our surrounding community, we all need to firm our foundation of Christ together as one. Peter tells us that we are all being built together as living stones laid on the foundation of the cornerstone to rise together. Why? Because of this. Because each Christian is an essential stone that makes up the spiritual building that is the church. And God has a purpose for all of us to fill together that we cannot fulfill individually on our own. Peter knew that we are stronger together, and without each other, we cannot stand at our strongest. We need other believers arm in arm to stand with us and help us be a conduit of change, to help us stand against culture and stand for Christ and be a light to our lost and falling world. Look what the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, the Apostle Paul, just like Peter, we see that we are citizens of the saints. We are members of God's household being built together. We are brought together permanently by God for his purpose and his glory. The church was not man's invention. It was God's intention. You see, God wanted the church to be built together to be his light, to... Um, Proclaim his excellencies and his glories. You see, when Christ is our collective foundation, we will display the spirit of God through the way we live in community with each other and how we interact with the world around us. Like when Christ is our collective foundation, we will then begin to display the spirit of God as one body, as one race, as one believers, as we live in community with one another. And as we do that, we begin to interact with the world around us unified. We are stronger when we stand on the cornerstone that is Christ, and we are stronger when we stand with others beside us. And see, once we advance in our faith, once we affirm our foundation, once we know our foundation, once we are secure with Christ, then we can do the third thing Peter tells us to do. And the third thing Peter tells us to do is this. Accept your family. Advance in your faith, Affirm your foundation, accept your family. Look at verses 9 and 10 in 1 Peter chapter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, establishing your foundation will lead to embracing your new identity. And I, and I love this definition of identity, that identity can be defined as what the most important in your life, what most people in your life say about you. Your identity can be defined by what the most important people in your life say about you. So when people talk about you, what do they say? When people think about you, what do they think? Man, he's a great doctor. He's a great businessman. He's a great dad. She's a great mom. She's a great teacher. 
She's a great nurse. She's a great doctor. He's a great pastor. He's a great this. When people think about you, when people talk about you, what are they talking about? What are they saying? And then when God thinks about you, what does he think? Well, he just told us what he thinks, and and here is what God thinks. God chose you, if you're a believer in this room, God chose you to be in in his family. You are chosen by God. As a believer, you are part of a living temple that is the corporate people of God. And one of my favorite parts of our identity in Christ is how in these verses we are described as a chosen race. Chosen race, it refers to the corporate unity of believers. Like in light of all that is going on in our society, in our nation, it's good news to know that in Christ, believers of all races are unified. That's great news. You see, if we want to be a vessel for change in our community, then the community needs to see a people, a church unified. If it doesn't happen first in the church, it'll never happen outside the church. You see, we are to be the ultimate example of the world. We are a chosen, a unified race. And as I was preparing for this part of the message, I was reminded of a song I grew up singing when I was like in preschool. And the song was called, Jesus Loves the Little Children. Raise your hand if you've ever heard that song. I just want to read the lyrics. Yeah, I haven't sung this song or seen it in years, but I read the lyrics, and they really just hit home once again. I'm not going to sing it. I'll spare you my singing voice. All right, I joke. I was born for a microphone, but not to sing, okay? Um, but here's the, ver- here's the words. Jesus loves little children, all the children of the world. Red, brown, yellow, black, and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves little children of the world. It gets better. Jesus died for all the children of the world. Red, brown, yellow, black, and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus died for all the children of the world. And the last little part, Jesus rose for all the children of the world. Red, brown, yellow, black, and white, they are all precious in his sight. Jesus rose for all the children of the world. You see, for so many of us, we learn that song as infants. We learn that song as preschool students, preschoolers. But when we grow up and we forget that Jesus didn't die for people that look like me. No, Jesus died for all the children of the world. That every single person you come encounter with in life, they are all precious in his sight, no matter what they look like, what they believe, who they voted for, regardless. Every single person you come encounter with in your life is precious in Jesus' sight. Only did he love them, but I love the song and say he just loved them. He says, no, he loved them, he died for them, and he rose for them. We are a chosen unified. How great is the truth of this song? You see, when Jesus died, he died for one race. That is his chosen unified race. There are not white Christians, black Christians, Asian Christians, Hispanic Christians. No. In God's eyes, he sees Christians, a unified race, unified under the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. This is who we are. This is our identity. We are a people who are chosen, who, as mentioned by verse 10, we receive the mercy of God, and it's time for us to live like it, church.
We will never see change in our community until we accept our family of believers. If we want to see a unified nation, we need to see a unified church. If we need to see a unified world, we need to see a unified church, not just here but across the world. We need to accept our family. I think it's important for us to point out that while Peter is mentioning who we are as believers, he also tells us why we were chosen. And that is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us. You see, our purpose is threefold. We are to declare the praises of God, highlight the grace of God we received, and then show that grace and mercy to others, pointing them to Jesus. And see, Peter knew that. And he said this, once you know who you are, then you can figure out what to do. Our foundation is the basis of our identity, and our identity reveals to us our purpose. You see, when you advance in your faith, you begin to affirm your foundation. Once you know what you are standing on, then you begin to know who you are. And once you know who you are, you then know what to do. Now, at the end of the day, you are not a businessman. You are not a father. You're not a mother. And you're not a teacher. You're not a brother, a sister, a sibling. If you are a believer, God sees you as a believer first. Everything else is secondary. That's how we are to live our life. And so now that Peter tells us that we need to advance in our faith, now he tells us we need to affirm our foundation, tells us who we are and what to do, the last thing left for us to do is, number four, accomplish your purpose. Look at verses 11 and 12, and then verses 6 to 11 in chapter 5. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that, they may speak, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And then chapter 5, verses 6 to 11, read this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see, as Christ followers, we are exiles in this world, and we are called to live differently than the world around us. And we do so by following what is laid out in chapter 5. You see, in those verses in 5, 6 through 11, they lay out not just how to simply survive, but to thrive in a hostile, cruel, and chaotic world. And and I love that the first thing Peter says in verse 6 is to humble yourself. You see, I think Peter, when he was writing this letter, knew a lot of men would hear this verse, okay? And he said, hey, the first thing we have to do is to humble ourselves. Admit that we need help. Admit that we can't do this on our own, that we're not stronger by ourselves, but stronger together. But in order to accomplish our purpose, we have to admit we need help. You see, the only thing you need to access God's help is need. Like all you need is need, and all of us in this room I know have needs in our lives. Peter earlier told the church that they need to affirm their foundation. Why? 
because he knew that in order to be firm in your faith, in order to stand firm and resist the devil, you have to have a firm foundation. You see, our foundation is the beginning of our defense against the devil. If you have a weak foundation, it means your defense mechanism for the devil is weak. If you have a weak, dry faith and you are weak against the devil, if you only get your spiritual milk once a week, guess what? The devil's coming for you every other day but that day, all right? That Sunday where you're getting your spiritual milk, he's planning how to get you the rest of the week. See, the truth of the matter is we are all going to suffer because the devil is waiting to attack. The Bible tells us he is roaring around like a lion, waiting to devour us. So we have to be ready. Martin Luther, the reformer, said this. I love this quote. He said, the devil, when he finds an opportunity, gladly climbs over the fence, especially where it is the lowest. I'm going to read that again. The devil, when he finds an opportunity, gladly climbs over the fence, especially where it is the lowest. You see, I believe for so many of us, the devil used covid The devil is using our culture, especially for our students, to climb over our fence and disrupt our lives. He used COVID, he used culture to find out where our fence is stronger, where our fence is higher, and where it's lower, and to climb over that lower spot. You see, the devil wants nothing more than to hinder us from accomplishing our purpose as believers and as the church. And the way we respond to the devil The way we respond when we are mistreated is a billboard for our faith, and Peter knew that. You want to know how strong someone's faith is? Look at them in the midst of adversity. When their life is going hard, when things are not going the way they want them to do, look at their life then. Look at how they're acting then. That's where you find out how strong their faith is, not when things are going great. And in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2, Peter informs us that those who have trusted in Christ bear witness of the gospel by our conduct. See, I believe if Peter were writing this today, he'd say not only does our conduct reveal the gospel to others, but our conduct online does as well. It's not just our conduct when we're out and about in the world, it's also our conduct when we're behind our phone screens or computer screen where no one else is watching. See, now the church for Peter was being established and it was growing. Peter urged God's people to exhibit their newness and their freeness to witness to their identity in Christ. You see, Peter reminds us that holiness was not just meant being set apart from something, but set apart for something. At the end of the day, our purpose is not to be known, but to make Christ known. That is what we are to accomplish as exiles. We do not care how many people know our name. We should only care how many people know his name. You see, when you think about your life, the measure of your life is this. The measure of our lives is not how many people know our name, but how many people we have caused to know his name. Think about this. Raise your hand in this room if you know who led Billy Graham to the Lord. Raise your hand. Three or four hands have gone up. We don't know much about the man who led Billy Graham to the Lord. But we know that because he led Billy Graham to the Lord, Billy Graham was able to lead thousands, hundreds of thousands to the Lord. You see, that guy knew it wasn't about who knows my name. I'd be writing a book like, hey, I led Billy Graham to the Lord, okay? Like, let me tell you. No. 
to know the measure of my life does not know who, know who knows who I am, but how many people I caused to know who Christ is. And as I begin to close out, I want you to imagine this. Like, imagine how disappointed the devil must have been when he rose from the dead, when Jesus rose from the dead. Like, here you have the devil thinking he just defeated God's son. He thinks he's won. He's all excited, hey, we did it, here we go. But in reality, he himself had just been totally defeated. And since the devil could not defeat Jesus, what did he do? He has gone to plan B, and that's to attack us and his church. He's like, well, I couldn't beat him. Maybe I can beat his followers. If Satan had the guts to tempt the Son of God, he will and has no trouble attempting me and you. He couldn't stop Jesus from accomplishing his purpose, so what did he do? He's trying to stop us, stop the church from accomplishing ours. Everyone watching online here in the room, listen to me when I say this, focus in. Before we can accomplish our purpose, before we can accept our family, before we can affirm our foundation, before we can advance in our, first, our faith, we first have to kneel before God. Before we can take a stand against um, and be a beacon of hope and a light of the world around us, we have to take a knee and bow before the Savior who gave his life for us. Before we can take a stand, before we can be a beacon of hope to the lost and dying world around us, we first have to take a knee and bow before the Savior who died for us. That is why Peter starts his letter off in chapter 1 by explaining to the church that before anything else, they needed to be holy. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then verses 14 and 16 say this. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy and on your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I will say it again. The only thing you need to access God's help is need. All you need is need, and all of us need a Savior. Before we can take a stand against sin, we first have to kneel before our Savior. Would you pray with me? Maybe you're in the room here this morning, maybe you're watching online, and you're a believer. You say, you know what, I've given my life to the Lord. I know for a fact that I am secure in my faith. I have a firm foundation. But you'd be bold enough to say, you know what, Riley? I need to long for spiritual milk. That become one of those, hey, I'm gonna get my glass of milk on Sunday, be empty on Wednesday, and, and wait for a fill the next Sunday. And if that's you, I want to encourage you that when we leave today, there's a table out in the lobby. has a ton of resources. You can grab a resource that will help you walk through the Bible, help you grow, help you be filled each and every day. Long for that spiritual milk. 
Maybe you're in, in their room and you say, you know what, Riley, I'm doing good there, but I haven't really accepted the family of God. That I kind of come in here on the Sundays, I sit in my seat and I leave and go back to my car and go back home. So you know what, maybe I want to I accept my family. One of the best ways to accept your family is to get into a group. Get into a small group, a disciple-making group. If that's you, when you leave the service, the table called Connection Point in the lobby. Go there, ask, hey, you know, I want to get into a group. We have groups that meet each and every Sunday at 11 o'clock right after this. For all ages. Hey, you know what, I want to get into a group. I want to accept my family even more, become more of the family of God. And then lastly, if you're in this room, you say, you know what, Riley? I can't advance in my faith. I can't affirm my foundation. I can't accept the family. I can't accomplish my purpose because, you know what, I've never kneeled before God. That, Riley, my life was described by the things that Peter said, by envy, by malice, by deceit, by hypocrisy. But, but I don't want that anymore. I want to kneel before, I want to stand against my sin. I want to kneel before God so that I can stand up the devil and say no more. And you want to give your life to Christ. If that's you in this room, you know what, for the very first time, I wanted to commit my life. I want to give my life to the Lord. Would you pray something like this in your heart? It's not the prayer that saved you. It's the, this posture of your heart. But pray something like this. Say, Father, I admit that I'm a sinner. I acknowledge that my life is, is described and marked by deceit, by malice, by envy, by hypocrisy. It is marked by sin. I confess those to you. I repent of those. Father, I turn away from those. And right now, I accept you as my Lord and Savior. I confess with my mouth that you are Lord. I believe in my heart that, God, you raised Jesus from the dead. Father, I am kneeling before you, giving my life to you. Now, if you just prayed that prayer, if you're watching online, you're here in the room, I want you to do something for me. There's two things you can do. If you prayed that prayer and you meant it, you can go to crosspointchurch.com slash decision. You can fill out the form there. If you do it online, they'll be there as well. We'd love to follow up with you and help you also be baptized and, and have that public declaration and an outward expression of that inward change. Or you can text Jesus to 678-255-2566. Again, text Jesus, all lowercase, to 678-255-2566. Church, it's an honor and privilege to come up here and share God's word with you. But know this, as we sing one more song, as we go, whether it's to a group or home, whatever it, is, whatever it is, let's together, let's advance in our faith. Let's affirm our foundation. Let's accept our identity and let's accomplish our purpose. When our community looks at our church, may they see a unified church. A church that puts the gospel above all else, the gospel first. A church and a people that does everything we can to point others to Jesus and inspire them to live the cross-shaped life. Would you guys stand? And we're going to sing.